Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Here on The Lowdown, we've asked some big questions over the years, but today we're going to ponder the biggest of all. Are we alone in the universe? Are there somewhere out there intelligent beings looking up into the night sky asking the same questions about us? And what might they be like, these other life forms? Friendly, hostile? Would they resemble us physically? Would they be more intelligent? Would they want to serve us earthlings by helping us to save our beleaguered planet? Or, hearkening back to the best episode of The Twilight (laughs) Zone ever, serve us in a pot of stew? Whatever your answers to any of these questions, they'll reflect your own knowledge of Earth science and biology, your own existential discomfort with life on Earth, your own fears of other cultures, and your own comfort with other species. In short, the biggest question in the whole universe is ultimately a very personal reflection. Here with us today to ponder the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence is science journalist Jamie Green. She's the series editor of the Best American Science and Nature Writing, and today we're talking about her new book, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Jamie Green, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So why do you tell us that imagining extraterrestrial life is a way of figuring out what it means to be human and that our visions of space are actually a reflection of ourselves and our humanity? Well, to begin with, you know, when we are imagining other life, we're extrapolating from what we know. Life on Earth is the only example of life that we have Human intelligence is the only example of a technological civilization that we have. And so, you know, we are very creative, but it's you you are starting from what you know and you're constrained by what you know and what you can imagine is variations on that. Hmm. But I don't just think it's the limits. I think it's also about what we're trying to do when we imagine other life. Like, yes, there is the scientific project of wanting to be able to look for it. But even that isn't just about filling in some scientific blind spots. It's also about understanding life on Earth in a new context, understanding if we're rare or common, if we're average or strange. We don't have anything else to compare ourselves to. So looking for other examples of life is about scientifically understanding life on Earth as well. But I also think in a more personal meaning sort of way, Um, imagining alien life is a way of, of testing out how we understand life on Earth and testing out what different possibilities would be like. I think especially for imagining other alien civilizations, it's really a way of saying, okay, what if our civilization was different in this way? What if our values were like this? What if in the future we took this path or the other path? It's really like a way of testing out other versions of what it could mean to be human or what humanity could look like in the future. Up until the last 30 years or so, you said the more we learned about the universe, the harder it was to imagine it to imagine it full of life. Why is that and what has changed? If we start 
looking at this around um, the Renaissance, you know, the discoveries of Copernicus and Galileo together really opened up the possibility within Western culture for imagining life on other worlds. Because Copernicus showed us that the Earth is not the unique center of the universe, but the sun is the center of the solar system, and the Earth is just the Earth. And then Galileo, with new advances in telescopes, discovered that the planets, which to the naked eye look like points in the sky, were actually spheres, were worlds, because he was able to see the phases of Venus, which revealed that it's a sphere. And so then... We had all this new real estate for imagining other worlds because if the other planets were made of the same substances as Earth, because Earth wasn't special, um, then there at that point was no reason to think that there wouldn't be life on other worlds because life was just a property of matter. It was thought that there was, you know, a sort of vital energy that just imbued matter with life. And so it was taken for granted that it would be on other worlds. Um and it wasn't until we started getting to know more and more about the other planets in the solar system that we came to understand that they might not be habitable, that the you know gas giants were gaseous and didn't have a friendly surface, and that Venus was smothered in gases and so hot and full of acid rain. And Mars, I mean, even into the early and mid-20th century, there was hope that there would be not just microbial life on Mars, which is what we look for now, but a civilization, you know, with canals, which is what we're thought to be seen in the early 1900s. And until the Viking mission that landed on Mars in 1975, some scientists thought that that lander might touch down and see grass, see visible <laughs> complex life. But the more we get to know Mars, the more we know that, like, not only is it not obviously covered with life, but, you know, maybe there was life in the past. Maybe there are tiny little bits surviving now, but it's been very hard to find evidence for that um, to whatever extent scientists have been looking. And then even in terms of planets beyond the solar system, we have been very lucky to find out that it turns out planets are bountiful if you look at any star in the sky odds are there's a planet around it but we haven't found any planets that are a lot like earth orbiting stars that are a lot like the sun we have found lots of different configurations of planets that might make it seem like earth-like planets depending on how you define that could be rare um and then also, as we've learned about the origin and evolution of life, we start seeing some challenges there as well. So, you know, it, it's sort of tricky where Copernicus showed that the Earth is not the center of the solar system. The solar system is not the center of the universe. So we shouldn't assume that we're special in any way. But it hasn't been as easy to find life as we may have thought it would be. <laughs> the book talks a lot about science fiction. And astonishingly, you tell us one of the first books about aliens in outer space was written 400 years ago by none other than the famous German philosopher Johannes Kepler. Why has sci-fi been so important, not only to readers, but to scientists themselves? Yeah, I, I love that example of Kepler because Kepler was, you know, as important for astronomy as Copernicus, I would say. The Copernicus figured out the Earth isn't the center of the solar system, but Kepler is the one who figured out orbital mechanics, like that uh, planetary orbits are ellipses rather than spheres. So this is like, you know, a very serious scientist. But at that time, 
the line between science and fiction wasn't as firm. And there still are amazing science fiction works written by scientists who have either changed careers or do a lot of both. So there is that, um, that tendency, you know, but we see the work as really separate. But what that Kepler example tells me, and, and so this was a, this fantastical book about a man who falls asleep and dreams a conversation with someone who tells him about what all the life on the moon is like. But it's Kepler thinking through the implications of the moon being a world like Earth. And some of it is very scientifically inspired. It was thought that uh, the moon had mountains and sort of landforms that were bigger than those on Earth. So the life was imagined to be bigger. You know, these sort of trying to think through what would the reasonable implications be and to imagine it and to imagine a society and take this new information that we're gaining about the universe and try to make sense of it by turning it into stories and and imbuing it with feeling rather than just, you know, mathematical data. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. And today we're talking about intelligent life on other planets. My guest is science journalist Jamie Green. Her new book is The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the cosmos. Jamie, one of the problems when considering the possibility of extraterrestrial life is the fact that life itself is hard to define. Even NASA gets by with just a working definition. So why can't we simply know it when we see it? Why is the definition of life so complicated? This is actually one of my favorite ideas that I encountered while researching the book. And the idea is that uh, it's really hard to define life because life isn't something that can be understood through a definition. Anytime we try to define life, we'll say something like, you know, um, life is a a self-sustaining system that metabolizes fuel to keep living, you know? Well, a fire fits that definition or life uh, reproduces well, you know, a mule or a dormant spore or my grandmother, you know, at the moment, don't meet that definition. But there's there are scientists and philosophers of science who point out that definitions are for human concepts. We define words. A definition is about what a word means, but life isn't we don't care what the word means. We care what life is. It's this fundamental property of the universe, like gravity. Um, And those sorts of things aren't understood through definitions, because that's just what the word means. They're understood through theories, which is how we move to a deeper understanding of how the universe works. Like in gravity, um, in the case of gravity, we made advances with Newton, and then with Einstein, where Einstein tells us that gravity is the result of the the shape of space-time, the very fabric of space and time. And that's not defining a word, that's understanding where this phenomenon comes from and understanding how the universe works. We have a lot of theoretical underpinnings for physics. We don't have that for life. We don't know what happens to matter that crosses that line from following the laws of physics to following a new set of laws that are the laws of biology. So there's some really interesting research being done in the field that studies the origin of life, as well as astrobiology, which is the field that studies the possibility of life elsewhere, trying to work towards a theoretical understanding of life, sort of like a physics of life. But we are 
very far from from locking that down. I was fascinated um, by your discussion of Titan, the planet um, that is Saturn's largest moon. It's one of the most talked about possible homes for life right here in our solar system. It even has an ocean, but there's a big problem. So <laughs> if you would talk about the difficulty of confirming life on Titan. Yeah, so there are a handful of moons in the outer solar system that are believed to have sub to have subsurface oceans, meaning they have a thick crust of ice, and then underneath that, they I mean, we're talking like a mile of ice. Underneath that, there's probably liquid water. It might be very salty, it might, you know, have weird stuff in it, but there's probably liquid water there. But that's deep under the surface. Titan is the only body in the solar system other than earth that is known to have surface lakes and oceans but they are not lakes and oceans of water they're made of liquid methane and ethane <laughs> um and so on the one hand that's very exciting that there's surface lakes surface oceans because um we know that life developed on Earth first in the seas. You know, we, we carry salt water with us in our veins. Like, it, it's fundamental to the nature of life on Earth. Um, and cool chemistry can happen in lakes because you have the interaction between the atmosphere and the surface of the water and the water and the land around it. But we know all of that through the chemistry of life on Earth. We know that with water and carbon and salt and sugars and sunlight, um, which is not what you're working with on Titan. And all of our life detection technology, because we don't have a theoretical understanding of life, looks for things that are similar to life on Earth. Because we understand the chemical processes. We understand what's fuel and what's building blocks and what's waste. And we don't know that for the chemistry that could exist on Titan. It's also challenging because it's much, much colder than pretty sure anywhere on Earth. Um, and so chemistry just works at different speeds. Chemical reactions happen a little differently. So it's 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 actually another challenge to our imaginations. How do we begin to imagine a completely alien chemistry, not just in terms of what that alien biology might be like, but even just like how would you approach something that could look like life? The idea of an Earth-like or habitable planet, um, which we touched on before, is really very exciting. After all, habitability promises a place for us to escape when the shit hits the <laughs> fan here on Earth. So what constitutes a habitable planet and how many of them might there be? Well, <laughs> this is not going to be very uh, hopeful for people who are looking for an escape route because, I mean, it would be very hard to get to a planet around another star. You know, the closest habitable planet is four light years away. And that doesn't mean it's a four-year journey. That means, you know, we don't know how we would get there. But even Mars, which is, you know, a seven or so month journey with the technology we have, if we're talking about things going bad on Earth, it would absolutely be a better use of our technological power to fix Earth <laughs> than to start fresh, even on Mars, such a close neighbor. But habitable is is a tricky word because in astronomy, it has a very strict definition, which doesn't mean we could live on it. Habitable means that the planet is of the right size to have a, a rocky composition. So it has, you know, 
it's Earth-like in that sense. It's solid as opposed to, you know, Jupiter or Saturn or Neptune or Uranus, which are gaseous, icy. There's there's no nowhere to land there very comfortably. Um, and that the planet is the right distance from its star to have the potential to have surface water. Not saying that we know there's water there, but based on how bright the star is and how close the planet is, the temperature seems right. It's just those two variables. But there's so much more that goes into making a, pla a planet hospitable to life. Even the question of surface water, if the planet has an atmosphere or not, that determines what may be on the planet. Venus has a rocky surface, is the right distance from, Earth, um, from the sun, but has this massive runaway greenhouse effect. We don't really know why it went in such a different direction than Earth did. Um, you know, the closest habitable planet is happens to be around the closest star. It's the planet Proxima Centauri B, which is a little over four light years away. Um, but in that case, and a lot of the planets we've found that qualify as habitable planets, they're actually orbiting very close to their stars, closer than Mercury is to the sun. But their stars are much dimmer and cooler than the sun. So um, they're technically the right distance for having the right temperature for surface water um, on the planet, but they're very close to their star, which does weird things to their orbits. It can sort of um, lock them to the star. So one side always faces the star, one side always faces the cold darkness of space. And those are sometimes very active stars and you're very close. You're getting shot with all kinds of weird radiation. So that's just another way that habitable, as astronomers use it, does not necessarily mean we're finding alternate homes. <laughs> the moon, as, yes. as you tell us, and this blew my mind, the moon is actually <laughs> made of Earth. So explain how that happened and also how really important our moon has always been to life on Earth. Yeah, so most moons form the way that planets form. So planets form out of the leftover debris circling a young star. It just sort of, the star forms, and then there's some leftover schmutz orbiting it, sort of picture Saturn's rings, and it coalesces into planets. And then a planet forms, and they've got some leftover schmutz circling them, and that may coalesce into a couple of moons, um, is the very, very brief version of it. That makes moons that are relatively small compared to their planets but our moon is huge proportionally and the the going theory is that it was formed early in the solar system's life when there was still a lot of that extra debris kicking around where the young earth was was doing its thing and a large um, protoplanet about the size of mars smashed into the early earth and this created a huge explosion of debris. The protoplanet was destroyed. A lot of Earth's newly forming crust was, you know, um, ejected and shot into orbit around the Earth. And that eventually coalesced into the moon. So it's thought that a lot of the Earth's crust was sort of stripped off and formed into the moon. This wasn't figured out until Apollo missions brought back moon rock and we were able to analyze it and looked kind of familiar. Um, and so it's possible that thinning the Earth's crust in that way makes the planet more um, tectonically active, gives us 
more um, continental movement, more earthquakes, more volcanoes. And it turns out that volcanoes and then the recycling of the Earth's crust through tectonic activity helps um, stabilize carbon in the atmosphere. It's called the carbon cycle. And it's this fascinating feedback loop that sort of when the Earth warms more, more carbon gets locked into the crust. When the Earth is cooler, um, it, it has to do with acid rain and weathering. It's this fabulously complex system, which is, you know, uh, not something that is so powerful that humans can't mess it up, as we're finding. But um, it's possible that that increased tectonic activity, which may be thanks to the moon, may be why we never turned into a big ice ball planet or had a runaway greenhouse like Venus. Then you can find so many other ways that the moon has been important for life. Um, the moon keeps the tilt of the Earth's axis pretty stable. You know, we're tilted at uh, 23 and a half degrees, which is why we have seasons, that whenever your hemisphere is tilted toward the sun, you have summer. Mars, on the other hand, its axis wobbles. Um, sometimes it's almost upright. Sometimes, you know, on epic timescales, it's almost horizontal. And that can be really disruptive to the climate, it changes the seasons a lot. But the moon keeps us steady. Um, the moon obviously gives us stronger tides than we would have from just the sun. And tides may have been really important for life moving from the oceans onto the land. Because when you have tidal zones that are sometimes water, sometimes land, it's sort of like a, like training wheels for moving onto life from the uh, moving onto land from the ocean. It, it goes on and on. But what we don't know is are all of these features requirements for life in general, or were they just helpful to life on Earth and life elsewhere would, you know, find a way? If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about what it means to us to imagine intelligent life on other planets. My guest is science journalist Jamie Green. Her new book is The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the cosmos. So, Jamie, you describe a concept um, called convergent evolution, in which two organisms that lack a recent common ancestor actually end up more and more alike as they adapt to a similar ecological niche, sort of like birds and bats. They both have wings. So, so tell us how this could mean that life on other planets might actually look similar to us. Yeah, I mean, that's also, that is such a fantastic explanation of convergent evolution. I love that. Um, basically, the idea is that if life on another world were trying to solve in evolutionary terms, uh, the sim trying to deal with similar challenges and similar problems, you know, um, would it come up with the same solutions? Because as you said, we do see life on Earth coming up with the same solutions wings, uh, the body shape of dolphins and sharks. The anatomy of the human eye is very similar to an octopus eye, but evolved totally independently. And anytime you see depictions of aliens that are similar to life on Earth, the underlying logic there is the logic of convergent evolution. The idea that some organism on another planet would develop the ability to turn sunlight into um, energy. And so then you would get plants. Um, and that 
some animal would discover that, you know, vocal communication is very effective because you can do it in the dark. You can do it when your hands are free. You know, it's, um, it covers long distances, right? And so that, like, alarm shouts might turn into language in the same way. Um, the truth is we don't know because even bats and birds and humans and octopuses are related, right? We're working with the same basic building blocks. Um, so it's a huge unknown because even on earth, we don't know if convergent evolution is the standard is the rule. If, you know, to, to borrow language from, uh, from the evolutionary biologist, Stephen Jay Gould, if you would rewind, rewind the tape and play it again, would things turn out the same or are we looking at the result of a lot of flukes and randomness? You know, if if an ancient predator gobbles up this animal instead of that animal, do we have a totally different ancestral path? Or if an asteroid lands two inches to the left, does our great, 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 great ancestor, you know, little shrew who was hiding out in a dugout ditch actually get smushed? Or is it even more random than that, that just like, you know, different solutions might work are there multiple ways to make a living in the world or have we stumbled into these paths because they're actually the most efficient and most effective and that's what we're going to see on another world as well so i'm gonna paraphrase the polish science fiction writer stanislaus lamb um by saying when we go in quest of a planet we're only seeking ourselves. We have no need of other worlds. We're searching for an ideal image of our own. Can you explain why? Why do you think we Earthlings search for mirrors of ourselves when our own world is so full of wonderful things? I think in some ways um, it's the centuries and millennia, especially you know, in Western culture coming from the Greeks and their legacy and, you know, religion, you know, the Bible as well, that we see humanity as separate from the rest of the world. In the Bible, that's, you know, us being God's special creation. Um, in ancient Greece, it's the idea that there's this hierarchy among animals that we're at the top of. Um, we see ourselves as the only example of intelligence. And we also see this in modern society as seeing humans as sort of the antithesis of nature, partly out of guilt for harms that we've done to the environment. But, you know, it's like there's cities and that's where people are. And then there's nature and we define nature as where humans aren't. And so we've become sort of alienated from the natural world and distanced from it. And so when we think about looking for, um, you know, other examples, other versions of ourselves are sort of kins, you know, are kindred. Um, we look to the stars. We're looking for other examples of intelligent technological beings. But there is a lot of kinship to be had with life on Earth. You know, part of that is respecting the um, intelligence and sort of right to be alive of other animals and appreciating and seeing ourselves as connected to this world. Hmm. But then like the fact is we can't talk to dolphins. We probably, we can't really talk to apes. We don't have peers. Um, and even though dolphins are so intelligent, 
they live in such a different environment that their intelligence is really different from ours. And so an alien that lives on land and, you know, works with its hands, like they might be more similar to us cognitively than a dolphin is, even though we're so closely related to dolphins. Okay, really quick, we have like 30 (laughs) seconds left. What sci-fi book, movie, TV show, whatever, really nails it for you? It really says, wow, that could be it. That could be extraterrestrial life. Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Because my favorite <laughs> examples are usually the ones where like the aliens are kind of people-like and they're fantastic stories. Um, you know, men- you mentioned Lem. Solaris really imagines a truly alien, incomprehensible alien. Um, and I think there's something really valuable in that total difference. Um, but then on the flip side, Mary Doria Russell's novel, The Sparrow, imagines an alien society that humans can really connect with and understand, but shows how easy it would be for things to go wrong, even with the best of intentions. I'm sorry that sounds so grim. No, no, that's cool. That's cool. And that's a really good way to end. I want to thank you very much. My guest today has been science journalist Jamie Green. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. The Possibility of Life was recently published by Hanover Square Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on our human obsession with finding extraterrestrials one interview at a time. Bye for now.